We all know Orson Welles' film career began in 1941, when, aged just 25, he delivered the glorious Citizen Kane. We also know that with his next picture, The Magnificent Ambersons, Welles fell foul of the studio system, and by the end of the decade, his reputation had sunk so low, he left Hollywood for Europe. What had he done to become such an outcast? While some of that can be explained by jealousy at his outrageous talent and prodigious youth, there is another reason too seldom admitted that needs to be repeated. Orson Welles was blacklisted. In the 1930s, when he took New York theatre by storm, he did not shy away from liberal and progressive causes. And even before Citizen Kane was released, he had come under the maniacal glare of J. Edgar Hoover. The FBI director had a dossier compiled on Wells, which you can read online, all 222 pages of it, part of which says, The evidence before us leads us inevitably to the conclusion that the film Citizen Kane is nothing more than an extension of the Communist Party's campaign to smear one of its most effective and consistent opponents in the United States. That opponent was newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst, and that was September 1941 mere months before America entered the war. After the war, the communist witch hunts and Red Scare began to grip Hollywood. And although he was no communist, Wells knew enough to understand that he would soon fall foul of rumour and suspicion. So in November 1947, the very same month the Hollywood studios launched the blacklist, Wells left America and didn't return for almost a decade. Oh, what happened to Vargas? What was it, Al? Nothing. Oh, no? Al! Certainly nothing to do with this bombing affair. Somebody uh, threw ashes at Vargas. It doesn't matter. Well, he missed... Who was it, Al? I don't know. Oh. He got away. This is one of the grand agents. What makes you so sure of that, Captain? Released in 1958, Touch of Evil was the first studio film Wells had made in ten years. Set on the American-Mexican border, it opens on a close-up of a timer being set on a homemade bomb that is then placed in the trunk of a car before pulling away to a continuous track and crane shot that swoops and sweeps across rooftops and side streets to follow the car as it makes its way north across the border and into America. The whole thing lasts over three minutes. To give you an indication as to how long that is, I'll start running it now. Even just listening to the sequence, I cannot help but think of what Alfred Hitchcock had to say about suspense. Now let's take the old-fashioned bomb theory. You and I sitting talking will say about baseball. Suddenly a bomb goes off and the audience have a 10-second terrible shock. Now, let's take the same situation. Tell the audience at the beginning that under the table and show it to them. There's a bomb, and it's going to go off in five minutes. What are the audience doing? They're saying, don't talk about baseball. There's a bomb under there. Get rid of it. The movie began life as a novel, Badge of Evil, written in 1956 by Whit Masterson, a pseudonym used by Wade Miller. Now, Wade Miller was not an author, but two authors, Bob Wade and Bill Miller, whose specialty was Sirvi Noir. Some of their other books, All Through the Night, Evil Come, Evil Go, and 7-Eleven Officer Needs Help were turned into films, respectively A Cry in the Night, The Yellow Canary, and Warning Shot. But the fact that you've likely never seen, let alone heard of any of them, 
should tell you the only reason why Badge of Evil is remembered today is because of what Wells did to it. The Wade Miller novel takes place in an unspecified but large Californian city, where the DA, Mike Holt, is investigating the murder of a big businessman, Rudy Lineker. Holt's prime suspect is Lineker's daughter, Tara. But things get murky when Holt engages a retired cop, Hank Quinlan. Quinlan then charges an entirely different suspect. Holt thinks this man is innocent of the crime, and things get even more complicated because just as Holt starts uncovering the truth, his wife, a woman of Mexican descent, is arrested on possession of drugs. All very generic, wouldn't you say? Which may make you wonder why Wells directed it. If he was such a pariah amongst executives and producers alike, why did Universal Studios hire him? Here is the film's star, Charlton Heston. It was a fairly routine police story, but even had it been a better script, as I pointed out to them, uh, with the exception of Westerns, they've been making police stories longer and oftener than any other single genre. I said, who's going to direct it? They said, well, we haven't picked a director yet. We have Orson Welles to do the heavy, though. This was on the long-distance phone, and after a static-filled pause, I said, uh, why don't you have him direct it? He's a pretty good director, you know. And the reaction at first was a prolonged silence, as though I had suggested that my mother direct the film. And after a while, I said, uh, yeah, that's right, we'll... Uh, We'll get back to you. There, that's it. The opening shot has just ended and the murder has been committed. Wells knew that Heston's recommendation was his final chance to get back to directing in America. And on the very first day of shooting, he made good on Heston's faith. On February 18th, 1957, Heston wrote in his personal diary, We rehearsed all day. We never turned on a camera all morning or all afternoon, the studio brass gathering the shadows in anxious little knots. By the time we began filming at 5.45, I knew they'd written off the whole day. At 7.40, Orson said, OK, print, that's a wrap on this set. We are two days ahead of schedule, 12 pages in one take, including inserts, two shots, over shoulders, the whole scene in one, moving through three rooms with seven speaking parts. Wells maintained that discipline all throughout the shoot and wrapped production on schedule and under budget on April the 2nd. But then in post-production, he was fired. Clearly, someone in Universal Studios took exception to what he had done with what the executive considered to be a standard crime drama. What Wells had done was relocated the Wade Miller story to a small town on the American-Mexican border where Mike Holt is no longer Mike Holt DA, but Mike Vargas. Mexican Drug Enforcement official, which means that Vargas comes north into America to help solve the murder. Furthermore, Wells re-envisaged the investigation so that it slithered alongside such taboo issues as racism, drug abuse, voyeurism, prostitution, gang culture, gang rape, and police corruption. In other words, Wells was depicting an America that was morally and legally polluted. Remember, this was 1958 when the number one U.S. television show was the wholesome homespun comedy, I Love Lucy. Hi, did you get everything? Yeah, I got everything. But if you don't stop having these silly cravings at four o'clock in the morning, I'm going to freeze to death. Here. Is this pistachio? Uh, yeah, that's pistachio. 
Which is that? Hot fudge. Pour it on top. <laughs> now pour that right on top of this. But honey, these are sardines. <laughs> Not only was Wells fired, the studio replaced him with a barely known director, Harry Keller, to cover a set of reshoots they felt necessary. When those reshoots were completed, Universal then cut 12 whole minutes out of the picture and dumped it into second-run theatres, where it played on the lower half of a double bill to the feature attraction, The Female Animal, which coincidentally had been directed by Harry Keller. The sequence Wells shot on the opening day, all filmed inside a cramped apartment in a single 11-minute take, was so complex that its production designers, Robert Catworthy and Alexander Golitsyn, had to build breakaway walls and then place all the furniture on wheels so they could roll out of shot as the camera went by. Bravura filmmaking, but precisely the sort of filmmaking many executives hated because a scene in a single take cannot be tampered with in post-production, which also means you either remove it entirely or reshoot it. Remember, I'll do all the talking. How do we begin? Do we play around first with a few nasty questions, or does he get out the rubber hose right away? Take it easy. Calma se contesta sus preguntas. Y si me da una golpeada. Barger. Yes, Captain. <laughs> Got my orders, Vargas. I'm supposed to extend you every courtesy. That don't mean you, you do the interrogating. I know, Captain. That's what I told Sanchez. Usually a director will compose a shot across the frame, arranging the actors and objects within a 2D proscenium. But it takes a special eye to do so across the frame and then into the frame. So the background interacts with the foreground and what is created is a 3D environment. I'm talking about depth of field. And almost every shot in Touch of Evil boasts an intricate relationship between the characters and their environment. In addition to that, I can't think of a single American film from that era that has a more mobile camera. Daylight, twilight, midnight, no matter when the scene is set, the movement never lets up. And while Wells was a magnificent visualist, the praise here must be shared not just with director of photography Russell Metty, but also camera operators Philip Lathrop, Roy Vaughan and John L. Russell, who incidentally would go on to light Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Could you show me, please, to my wife's cabin? No. There, there is nobody here. You must be mistaken, sir. My wife has been registered here since this morning. My name is Vargas. Vargas? Would you look, please, in the register? Register? And that might be cabin six. Possibly. Maybe seven. Yes. Here. May I? There's nobody been registered all week. No, no, it's 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 off the season. Nobody hardly ever comes around at all. And then on top of it all is the intricate sound design. Wells had always preferred his actors to deliver overlapping dialogue. So what comes at you here is a near cacophony of voices, some in English, some in Spanish, all competing for your ear. And then there is Henry Mancini's score. Unusually for the time, 
the music you hear is actually sourced to devices playing music within the scenes. Transistor radios, car radios, jukeboxes and pianolas. In other words, Wells and his sound designers, Leslie Carey and Frank Wilkinson, were sonically filling out and dimensionalizing the space that had been meticulously visualized with Russell Matty. This all comes into perfect and chaotic unison in the climactic scene where the dialogue is heard both live and immediately doubles back in an echo from a transmitter. Are you carrying a bug for him? A microphone? Don't lie to me! All right, all right. You better give me that Where is he? Where is he? How did you figure the frame Vargas would? Framed? Who's been framed? Where is he? Vargas? Where is he? Hank, look, Hank. I'm talking to Vargas now. Vargas? You hear me? I'm talking to you. Through this, this walking microphone that you... To work for me. No, I ain't working for Vargas. Vargas I'm, wor Var I'm working for the department, Hank. Before the film was released, Wells got to see what Universal had done. And in response, he wrote a 58-page letter detailing the changes he wanted to make. Just like the FBI file, you can read the entire memo online. But Universal flat out ignored his requests. Then, a couple of months later, despite Universal's objections, the film was invited to screen at the Brussels World Fair in June 1958. Here is Wells speaking after the screening. You saw your, your picture really for the first time? It is true, yes. Uh, could you tell us why? Well, because the completion of the montage of the film was uh, accomplished by the studio, not by myself. And they didn't invite me to a preview, I don't know why, a moment of panic or excitement. Mm -hmm. And it just happens that I've never seen it till mm -hmm. tonight. Did you like it very much? I don't know, I don't know. Was it the same picture you intended to make? Was no, the because of changes that they've made and so on. Amongst those sitting on the jury in Brussels that year were Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut. And although they knew they were watching a heavy boulderized version, they went ahead and awarded the first prize to Wells. The accolade made no difference to Universal, and for years Touch of Evil lay languishing in the studio vaults. But then in 1998, three decades after it was first released, three-time Oscar-winning editor and sound designer Walter Murch was called in to implement Wells' vision. What exists now is likely as close as we are ever to get to what Wells originally intended. There is available a special two-disc Blu-ray edition that allows you to compare the three versions, the theatrical, preview and 1998 cut. Just like his first picture, Orson Welles' last studio picture is not only a powerful examination of corruption, it is a veritable masterclass in filmmaking.